All right. This week we're talking about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Justin, would you read that for us? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Great. Thank you. I want to... As we talk about this text, there's a lot of different aspects of it we're going to talk about, but I want to keep bringing us back to a particular anchor point, because I think a lot of the ways that we, um, a lot of ways that this text can be unhelpful in our lives come from us losing track of a particular anchor point that's significant for understanding and applying it. And the anchor point is this. Let me ask it first as a question. What was the response people had to seeing the risen Christ? Mm -hmm. Was there one response that everybody who saw the risen Christ had? No. No. So what were the different types of responses? How did, what are ways that people responded to seeing the risen Christ? Amazing. Yep, some were amazed or disbelief. Well, let's put that as a different one. So some were amazed. Some believed, right? And some did not. Some fear. Which would be because they believed, right? Here's the main point. Good morning. Come on in. (laughs) Uh, Grab some snacks and find you a place. Let me, so let me ask you this. People had different reactions to seeing the risen Christ. And there's the emotional component of their reaction. And then tied to that, but not the same thing, was the, the logical component of their reaction. Did they believe it or did they not? Did they believe that he was who he said he was or did they not? So some had faith and some didn't. If you just want to really simplify it, you could say that of everyone who saw the risen Christ, some had faith and some didn't. What about during his ministry? When Jesus said who he was, when he taught the plan of God and what he was doing, what, what kind of responses did people have then? The same responses, right? Some believed and some did not. Some had faith and some did not. So we've got Jesus' teaching, his life and his ministry, where some people observe that and they respond in faith, and some people observe exactly the same thing and they don't respond in faith. And then we've got the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And some people see it and they respond in faith, and some people see it and they don't respond in faith. They disbelieve. 
was this, whether people believed or not, was that a reflection on Jesus's own skill or faithfulness or effectiveness? No. The way people respond to Jesus, so I'm not going to write all this anchor point out. This is for you note-taking people, but this is the anchor point. The way people respond to Christ had nothing to do with Christ's faithfulness, skillfulness, or effectiveness. Okay? We can't say that Jesus wasn't very good at teaching the Word of God. Right? We can't say that Jesus wasn't a good messenger of the good news of himself. Right? We can't say that Jesus was unfaithful to that message. And yet, when Jesus, the most bought into that message in the history of the world, the most effective, passionate, perfect teacher and communicator of that message, and the one who was raised from the dead to prove that message. When he goes out into the world and tells people the good news, some respond in faith and some do not. Some believe and some do not. That's the anchor point I want us to keep coming back to. It's not a reflection on his faithfulness or his skill that some believe and some do not. All right, so let's talk about the Great Commission a little bit. These are the marching orders for the Christian, for the Christian church, both. Is it an and? Is it an or? What what do you all think about that? Are these marching orders for the individual Christian, for the church, or for some combination? Does that distinction matter? It does matter. It matters because is this for me or not is a valid question. This is a command. Do this thing. Who is he telling to do this thing? The disciples. So does it stop with the disciples or do we think it goes beyond the disciples? If you, so it's a Okay, if, if, you, if you actually believe. <laughs> this is one of the hardest things for modern, for all of us, <laughs> to wrap our minds around about the way the Bible speaks. Is that it always speaks of the individual Christian in the context of the church. When it talks about salvation, it's this way. Is the Bible concerned with your individual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Are your individual and personal sins paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But you know, the Bible talks that way about salvation very, very little. It's both true, it is true, but the way the Bible talks about it is your sins are forgiven individually and you are grafted into this thing that is much bigger than you. You are grafted into the church and Christ because Christ is the head of the church. And so the way the New Testament speaks is regularly to the individual in the context of the church. 
that you are a part of this thing. And so you have responsibilities that are the responsibilities of the church of which you're a part. There is no church without the believers, without the individual people who are given faith and follow Christ. So the answer is both. It is both a command to you and to the church um, because the context in which the command is given to you is your union with the church and union with Christ. And that's why whenever commands like this are given to the disciples, sometimes Jesus tells things to, the disciples to do things as disciples. Just this is, you're going to go into this town and because you're disciples, you're going to do this stuff. But then sometimes Jesus gives disciples instructions that you can see as the, as, through the book of Acts as the disciples take their ministry forward into the world. They're doing that as, as shepherds of the church, as under shepherds of Christ. And the church is to carry that out both under their authority and beyond their authority. So the head of the church is Christ. And this is one of those times where we need to start to understand Christ not just as some symbolic head of the church. Oh, of course, it's the church of Jesus. Yay, Jesus, rah, rah. But to understand Christ as the commander of the church. He is the leader of the church. He's actually the one who says, I will build my church. I'm in charge of this thing, not me, Christ. And here's what you're going to do because I'm in charge. And so he gives uh, the commander, the head of the church, gives a command to those who will build his church. So one of the first things he has to establish in the Great Commission is by what authority? By what authority does he give this command? Isn't that a question that was asked of Jesus or not often asked of him directly, but asked behind his back all throughout the Gospels? By what authority does he do these things? By what authority does he heal the lame on the Sabbath? By what authority does he... It's like, wait, you need authority? Wait, isn't it pretty clear if somebody heals somebody and takes a lame beggar and makes him walk? What authorities at work here? Right? Uh, all the time, it's asked around and about Jesus, by what authority does he do this? And so he starts with, by whose authority does he assume command of the church and issue... A proclam what we're going to do, our instructions, our marching orders. So what does the text say? All authority. <laughs> I don't just have authority to issue this command. I have all the authority in the universe. Why does Christ have all the authority in the universe? Kids, good question for you. Why does Christ have all the authority in the universe, Kate? Because he made it. If you build an amazing kingdom of Lego in your bedroom, and it is the greatest Lego kingdom in the land, who has the authority to rain the fires of destruction down on your Lego kingdom and break it all apart? The one who built it, and mom and dad, because we're tired of looking at it. <laughs> Analogy doesn't work so well, does it? Christ has all the authority in the universe because he made the universe. All things were made in him and through him. And there's nothing that was made that was not made through him. He made it all. He owns it all. And so all authority belongs to him. So this idea that we go, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes, but whatever this great commission is, that we would go and that we'd make disciples of all nations, this is not some human proselytizing invention where we want people to think the way we think. This is not something that we do because we, uh, we 
would feel better if more people believed what we believed. This is something we do because the commander of the church, who has all the authority in the universe, looked at us and said, do it. Do this. So there are many people in the world today who want the church and the Christians within the church to hide their light under a bushel. That's okay for you, but don't talk about it in public. Don't bring that in here. Keep, keep a separation between what you believe and what we're trying to do in this government or this school or this neighborhood or this something else. And our answer has to be, winsomely and respectfully, we can't do that. The commander of the church told us not to put up walls like that. In fact, to tear them down everywhere we find them. That We don't have the authority to decide, I'm just going to keep my faith a secret. Or I'll be a Christian on Sunday, but when I go to work Monday through Friday, you just got to do what you got to do to get by. I don't have the authority to do that. All authority belongs to him, and he told me to do this. So the fact that he has authority over these evangelizing activities means several things for us. One is the plan is in accordance with God's will. All Jesus does is his father's work. That's what he does. He does the will of his father. And so the idea that his church would go and make disciples all around us is definitely uh, in accordance with God's will. It also means that he has the authority to issue this command. He is the head of the church. And it also means that the plan will be overseen by Christ himself. So come back to our anchor point for a minute. Because what are we going to get hung up on with fear and guilt regarding the Great Commission? Whatever we mean by, here's what the Great Commission requires of us. We'll get to that in a minute. What do Christians get really hung up on? It makes us afraid to do it, and it makes us feel guilty about the way we did do it. Why don't most Christians evangelize? They're afraid it's not going to work. Or they look back at times where they did do it or try to do it, and they feel like they were a total failure. I didn't, I wasn't. So where do we go? Back to our anchor point. There were people who heard Jesus teach and did not have faith. There were people who saw the risen Christ and did not have faith. Was that a reflection on Jesus? No, it's a reflection on their unbelief. We can't be results-oriented because the results are not a reflection on what we do. The results are a reflection on their unbelief. And so we've got to be willing to engage patiently and winsomely and with wisdom. And yes, develop some skill. Develop a way to articulate what you believe and why you believe it. All that's true. Uh, but we cannot get hung up, so hung up on the results that we forget our anchor point, that the way people respond is a matter of faith. Questions about that, and then we'll talk about the what. What is it that we're going to do? And the fact that you think the results, you think that you're doing something other than planting seeds. Right. What you're doing is planting seeds. 
And then what you're getting discouraged by is I planted these seeds and I didn't reap any fruit the next day. And that's a very short-sighted way to look at the universe and time and, and the plan of God. And granted, when it's someone we love and know, that extra day feels like forever. I, I, don't, I don't dismiss the emotional aspect of it. When you're praying for someone to believe and you know and love them, every day that they persist in their unbelief is just another dagger in your heart. So the emotional reality is very real. But the logical reality is God's got this. <laughs> He's better at running his world than we are. He really is. And so do the thing, whatever it is here that God calls us to be faithful doing, let's do that thing, not letting the fear of results stop us, not carrying a burden of guilt about results that doesn't belong to us, remembering that anchor point. This is how people responded to Jesus too. (laughs) This is to be expected. He has, but we can never see on this side who that is. So that's one of those facts that is both theologically perfectly true and relatively useless for what I do. Because I'm never going to look at, I mean, probably other than Jake, I'll never look at anybody and say, I just give up on them. They're beyond hope. Don't do it. That's right. That's right. So it's one of those pieces of knowledge that fits in this anchor point of God will save who he will save. And there are some that God raised up as vessels for destruction. You just, you cannot get away from that in scripture. And it's very, it's a scary thing to think about. Um, Just brief aside, it's only a scary thing to think about for people who fear God. The people who God actually did raise up as vessels of destructions, they're not scared of that at all. They don't live with this emotional tension of, oh, I want to believe God, but he won't let me. They're quite happy in their vessel of destruction status. We're the ones weeping for them, you know, praying that that's not the case. Uh, you, uh, the results, the focus on results, do you think that's, that's a question, where the, is that where we get the kind of what some call decision theology, which is a desire to have somebody pray a prayer or make a call and is there it's pretty prevalent today and is there is that ever appropriate um working backwards is it appropriate to call people to make a decision for Christ yes yes um we have to declare ourselves even when God gives us faith. He calls us to declare ourselves for him, to live for him in thought, deed, and speech. And we're not doing anyone any favors if we allow them to think that they can live in kind of this middle ground where the fact that they're not against Christ makes them for Christ. And so the right Way There are lots of contexts where we should not be the ones calling a person to that decision because we don't, we're not engaged in that conversation with them. Um, but principially, yes, everyone should be called to make that declaration and not allowed to live in an unhealthy tension between them. The first half of your question, um, 
I don't think the focus on results is what brought about the decision culture. I think a confusion about what salvation is brought about the decision culture. I think people um, have been taught to believe that salvation is like doing your taxes where it's an event and you fill out a form and you sign it and then that's that's done that's taken care of as opposed to salvation is an ongoing work of god transforming a life more and more into the likeness of his son until the day that he completes that work work out your salvation with fear and trembling it's a salvation that has a a progression and a progress it's not a it's not a moment in time there's no moment where you could look and say i was saved at that moment because in one sense you were saved when god wrote your name in the lamb's book of life back in eternity past and you are being saved until the day you are fully glorified in christ um and then i cut you you had a second part of that third part question uh, I guess you'd say, but uh, this, this is more just, I guess, an existential thing. There are a you. Some people do have this alpha point. It's not necessarily when they were saved. No, it's when they knew that they were on the. That's right. There, so that that's right. Continue. Um, some people have very dramatic conscience, uh, conscious moments where they grabbed hold of that faith and in their own way of thinking, it became central to their lives. Um, They will not have seen the steps that led them up to that moment. And then, of course, there are lots of us that never had that. We pray that our kids won't have that. We want our kids to say, I never knew a day when I didn't know the love of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Paul had one of those, right? <laughs> you know, kind of one of those, oh, everything, everything changed moments. So there certainly are moments where everything changes. And even for kids who grew up in the church, there are often moments where everything changes. There are often moments in a church child's life where they look and they say, that's when I realized this faith was mine and not theirs. Or that's when I realized this faith that God had been building in me from the day I was born was something I have to live out and work with. And you know, so it's not to say that life is devoid of those moments. We would just, if we were being theologically persnickety, we would not say that's the moment you were saved. And I think that's the emphasis on the decision culture more than the results. It's, it's not about, look, our brothers and sisters in churches that are big on altar calls and things like that, of them are not doing that because they're trying to get their numbers up. 99% of them are doing that because they believe that if they can get a person to make that decision in that moment, their taxes are done. And they hope that that person will then go on to live a godly life. But even if they don't, we we at least got this. You know, we got them in. And that's a theological error. That's not a, a malicious error. Other questions? Yeah, I think it's a good reminder for both groups, for them and for us. And I think it's uh, setting the context of giving marching orders for the church. Not like this is a big deal. What he's about to say is a very big deal. And it would be easy, especially in light of the interpretation I'm about to give you, for them to just think, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, that makes sense. That's that's what we were going to do anyway. And he's setting this aside. No, 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 this is your purpose. This is why you will go build my church. Um, 
All right, so let's talk about the objective, the what. What is going to happen as a result of the Great Commission? It is very rare that the Greek or Hebrew are helpful to the modern American reader. Uh, Just be honest with you. If you want to go learn Greek or Hebrew because you think that's fun, get help. Go (laughs) find therapy, right? Uh, No, some people really enjoy that, and that's fine. Um, But the modern English translations are so good, you don't need it. You don't need it to really understand what's going on in the text. And it's just every now and then in the Greek or Hebrew, you'll notice something that just doesn't come across well in the English. And this is one of those. The Great Commission is one of those verses where it's very hard to get it from Greek to English and keep the meaning the same. And the reason for that is when you think of the Great Commission, what's the one in English, what's the one word that really jumps out in your mind, like what the Great Commission is about is go. go. Right? Go! That's the biggest word of the Great Commission. Here's the problem. It's not in the Greek. It's not in the Greek. That doesn't make it a wrong translation, but it matters a lot for this. It can't be the emphasis of the text. The idea of go or going is certainly in the text. That's in the meaning, which is why they put it in the English. They want to make sure you understand. But we think of it as the emphasis of the Great Commission. The emphasis is on the going. I promise you, if the emphasis was on the going, the word go would be in the Greek text. It'd be the first word of the sentence because that's how Greek works. They don't have to do what we do with word order. They get to put whatever word matters most at the front. Right? Um, Go does not appear in the Greek. We cannot, must not, think of the Great Commission only in terms of missionary activities or even specifically what we would call evangelism-oriented activities. This idea of we're going to go do street evangelism or neighborhood evangelism or we're going to go on a missions trip. We're going to, those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with any of those. They all fit within what the Great Commission is telling us to do. But our problem is when we emphasize the word go, we think about those things first. Okay, what the Great Commission tells me to do is that once every couple of years, I got to make sure I put in my calendar a summer outreach week or a winter missions trip or something like that. That's how we think. But it's not what the text says. First of all, when Christ says all authority, so part of Justin, the answer to Justin's question is Christ says all authority is given to him, but he says all authority where? Does that leave anywhere out? So all authority everywhere has been given to me. There is nowhere that you go where he does not have authority. That doesn't just mean Mexico or Germany or West Africa. When I go on a mission trip, God has authority and I'll be... No, no, no. There is nowhere you go work, school, HOA meeting, there is nowhere you go that he does not have authority. And so, therefore, what comes next? A better verb than go, and again, you'll see, you ask me, well, if that's a better verb, then 
You know, ESV is a good translation. Why didn't they just put it there? Because you would need all this extra explanation. It's very hard to do this in English. But being is probably a more precise verb. Um, being in all the world make disciples. Not, not just going, but being. Wherever you are, wherever you end up, wherever you go, being there and me, Christ, having all authority in that place, therefore, make disciples there. So that includes all the places that you are naturally and all the places that he would call you to go. We are image bearers of Christ. Our commission is to show the world Christ. It's it's for them to see Christ in us. And there's a great deal of confusion around this where... um, Many, many people struggle to show the world Christ because if what we're supposed to do is show them Christ, many of us substitute Christ with truth. What I'm supposed to be for the world is truth. What the world lacks is truth. And I'm going to show it to them. And they're going to hear it from me and they're going to like it. Many people substitute Christ with nice. I'm going to show the world nice. I'm just going to be so nice. And then I'll win them over with my niceness. Because nice people win and it's nice. Is that what we're supposed to be? We're supposed to be Christ. We're supposed to be grace and truth. We're supposed to be toughness and tenderness. We're supposed to be mercy and compassion and uh, truth and faith and strength. We're supposed to be... Christ is, doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. What it means to be Christ-like is not a simple thing to explain. It's growing up in the faith. It's growing by grace. It's living as disciples. And to do that, we have to worship in truth. Hey, you want to know where we got our vision statement for the church from? Right? This, this is how it works. So we worship and we learn. And then by grace, we go live as disciples. Disciples of who? Christ. Why? Because being wherever we are in the world, because all authority in those places belongs to him, we are to show them Christ. And as we show them Christ, what will the result be? The anchor point. point. Will all believe? Well, then you did it wrong. No, right? Some saw the risen Christ and did not believe. Some heard. They ate the loaves and fishes. Can you imagine being at that meal? You ever want evidence of salvation being a work of God? 
I'm sorry, you guys, like I have to believe of myself in the flesh that if I'm with a man who has a couple fish and some bread and then he feeds thousands of people with it and this guy says he's God, I'm probably going with him. I may end up in some bizarre cult, but I'm probably going with the man who can multiply the loaves and fishes. That'd be good enough for me. I think it would, but it wouldn't. The Gospels prove that it wouldn't. I could have seen the risen Christ. And apart from faith, which God gives as a gift, it wouldn't be enough. So what happens when we show the world Christ? Back to our anchor point. Some will believe and some will not. That is no excuse to not show them Christ. This is in our uh, branch of Presbyterian history. You know, churches and denominations have schisms and split and break apart over the years for various reasons. And sometimes they're good reasons and sometimes they're bad reasons. Our particular branch of Presbyterianism broke for a good reason from some of the other Presbyterians. And it was over what we call the free offer of the gospel. Is Some Christians at that time were saying, look, if God's chosen his own people, then they'll be saved no matter what we do. And if somebody is not one of God's people, then we're wrong to offer them the gospel. They can't accept it, so we just shouldn't. We just shouldn't offer the gospel freely. We should only offer it to nobody in the end, right? And we said, no, no, the free offer of the gospel. We show them Christ. That's why evangelism must include substitutionary atonement, the good news that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. But it's not only that. We're not to show them just substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for us. We're to show them Christ. We're to show them the righteousness of Christ, the love of Christ, the power of Christ, the mercy, the compassion. Yes, the the obedience on the cross unto death, but also the power of the resurrection, the glory of the ascension, the kingdom that is to come. We're to show them Christ. That's way more than, back to Jake's question, just the ta- fill out the form, right? I accept these three things, fill out the form. No, no, no. It is transformative to a human life to see Christ. That was the greatest compliment any preacher can... When I met... Um, I went to college. We had... Daphne and I both had a great philosophy professor in college. He's now at Covenant College at Lookout Mountain. And uh, when I was figuring out where to go to graduate school and decided I was going to RTS, he found out that I was going to end up being the teaching assistant of a guy named Doug Kelly who's a, I'd never heard of him. I was not from this world of Reformed theology. No idea who this guy was. Turns out, he's one of the preeminent systematic theologians in the world. And so I tell my college philosophy professor, hey, it looks like I'm going to end up as a teaching assistant for this guy, Dr. Doug Kelly. And he stops in his tracks. And he says, do you know, the only thing I can say about that man is that when he preaches, I see Christ thought, wow, that is how all preaching ought to be. It's not how all preaching is. It's how all preaching ought to be. When you hear the word of Christ, you see Christ. It's transformative in a human life. So when we go out into the world, wherever we are, all the places where he has authority, we are showing them Christ. And the result of this is some people will not believe, but Here's the encouragement, some will. 
And of the ones who do, make disciples. Make disciples. He says to the disciples, go out into the world, show them me, some will not believe, and of the ones who do, make disciples. And then what do you think those disciples are supposed to do? Wherever they are out into the world, where Christ has authority there, show them Christ. And to those people who see Christ, some will not believe, but of those who do, make disciples of them. And then what does it mean to make disciples? Well, it appears to contain two main components in the text, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing, it's it's no surprise. It's essential that baptizing would be included in this because conversion always has an eye toward covenant. That's what I talked about earlier. Is God concerned with your individual salvation? Yes, as he draws you into a covenant community, as he unites you with a people. God has no interest in a direct relationship with you that ignores the rest of his people around him. God has a keen interest in a direct, deep, abiding, personal relationship with you experienced amongst the people of his covenant. And so if he's saving people by bringing them into union with himself, by bringing them into the covenant, what ought to happen to a person who's brought into the covenant? They ought to receive a mark of the covenant, a sign that they belong to this covenant. And thanks be to God that he opened up the sign of this covenant in between the Old Testament and the New to make it his baptism rather than circumcision. And now that covenant sign can be given across um, all people within the household and family of God. We are getting the mark of the community. So that's why when we baptize people, what do we say about baptism? Is it a statement of the person being baptized? Are they the one speaking? I believe in Christ and therefore I take this mark on myself. Some people believe that about baptism. That's not what we believe about baptism. Because we look at texts like this, we look at other texts in the New Testament, and we say, no, no, what it seems to be saying is, God is the one speaking. I brought you into this family. Here is the mark of this family. Now go live as a member of this family. And by the way, if you do this, you will be saved. If you live as a member of this family, you will be saved. You can be baptized. You can refuse to live as a member of the family. You can renounce your baptism, even by your life, if not just with your words. You know, the, the mark of the covenant doesn't save you. It marks you as participating in a covenant. Uh, and then notice here, baptized into what? You're baptized into the family and household of God. You're baptized into some form of union with whom? God himself. This is one of the rare texts in the New Testament that is directly Trinitarian. All three members of the Trinity are, uh, are at work in our baptism, and Jesus' baptism at the beginning of the Gospels is one of the other Trinitarian texts. Um, so that baptism is really significant as those who are being called into the covenant. And then the other part is teaching. The call to Christianity does not end with follow me or with baptism with the mark of the covenant, with the external participation in the covenant, right? That's why we say baptism doesn't save you. That's why in the Old Testament, being a member of Israel didn't save you. Christianity doesn't stop there. Showing them Christ is the critical component of, is a critical component of Christianity. And to do that, 
We have to learn who Christ is. We have to learn what Christ's likeness looks like. Kids, you experience this all the time because there are always people telling you what to do. There are always people correcting you. There are always people telling you things that you don't know or what you should be doing, this instead of that. I bet Nathan hears me tell him what to do 720 times a day. And adults, it's easy for us to forget because we have a lot fewer people in our lives telling us what to do. It's easy to forget that we needed to be told. We needed to be taught. How do I show people Christ? That doesn't come naturally to me. That comes by the Spirit of Christ working in me and teaching me. Teaching me through preaching and Sunday schools and Bible reading and prayer and small groups and conversations with friends. Teaching me through experience. Teaching me through conferences. All kinds of resources that God can use to teach us what it looks like to show people Christ. Um, That's what Jesus did with the disciples and the crowds. It's what the apostles did when they would go into a new town. Because one without the other is useless. This act of supposed belief. Yeah, yeah, I believe. Jesus saved me. That does not transform your life in such a way that your life then shows people Christ. You don't, that's, that's not belief. James makes that point clear. When he, when he says faith without works is dead, he's not saying, no, 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 I know we say it's faith alone, but you also got to check these five boxes. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying there's no such thing as a person who believes in Christ, who doesn't gain the ability to show people Christ. That's, that doesn't happen. It's not a thing. Uh, one without the other is meaningless. Christ says, that's why Christ says, you do not love him if you do not keep his commands. Right? Jesus is not introducing a salvation by works. He's saying, no, no, no. If you say you love me, you have everything you need to show the world Christ. You will live in Christ-likeness. So that's tougher. See, I'm hoping, that, I'm hoping that I tricked you this morning and that what you thought I was doing was making the Great Commission easier for you and telling you that you don't have to go on mission trips and you don't have to do these things to be an evangelist. And that's true. Those things can be good. You don't have to do them to fulfill the Great Commission. What you have to do to fulfill the Great Commission is all the places where Jesus has authority, just in those places, nowhere else, show them Christ. Not show them only truth, not show them nice, show them in its rich majesty and complexity, Christ. That's all you have to do. That's all that this command says is, hey, you, if you believe, go show Christ everywhere that Christ has authority. That's it. So how could we do this? How could we possibly do this? Well, what does he say at the end? I am with you always. How can you show them Christ? Because you're not showing them yourself, you guys. The great burden that people wear, people who get broken emotionally by failed evangelism is because they have, they have come to believe that what they're supposed to show people is a perfect version of themselves. I have to have all the answers. I have to never make a mistake. I have to be relatively sinless. I have to show the world a perfect version of myself, and then the world will believe. First of all, you can't. There's no such version. 
And secondly, if you showed people a perfect version of yourself, you know what people would come to believe in? You. (laughs) That doesn't do Christ a whole lot of good, especially when you turn out to fail them, because you will. What we're supposed to show them is not a better version of ourselves. We're supposed to show them Christ in us. And so when I do things well in my household, my kids need to see and know that what they are seeing is Christ in me. When I am able to forgive, when I am able to be patient, when I am able, I, they are seeing Christ at work in me. And saying to my kids, you know, there are lots of times where I, would, I don't get this right. But, but the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I, this is what God wants us to be. This is what you're supposed to follow. Not me, Christ. Not a better version of me, Christ. And then when I fail, saying to my kids, that is what not Christ-likeness looks like. You know, waving my angry fist at the people in traffic. <laughs> This is not Christ in me. This is me in me. And you see why we're trying to put that to death. Ain't nobody want to be around that guy. That's what we're supposed to show them is Christ. So back to our anchor point. What does that mean for evangelism? It means that some will respond in faith and some will not. It means that nobody can respond in faith if what we're showing them is ourselves. But if we show them Christ, we've done exactly what Jesus did. Some will believe, some will not, but we've been faithful because we did exactly what Jesus did. We showed them Christ. And so that takes all the pressure off of us. We do our duty. We speak the truth about Christ and love. We're ready and able to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. We know what we believe and why we believe it. And those are things we develop over time. We don't have all the answers from the beginning. And we have to be willing to say, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Or that's not something I thought a lot about. Or that's a great question. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Um, but we do our duty and then rest secure that the fruit of our labors, the results are in God's hands and not our own. Who's got, uh, Matt, would you read 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9? I think I just put 3, 5. Go through 9. Go through 9, okay. Uh, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gets the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Just go plant. Everywhere you are, just plant. Just plant seeds. Be Christ-like, and seeds will be planted. Be committed to truth, principled, rather than pragmatic. Not mean, not obnoxious, not unruly, but principled, rather than pragmatic. And seeds are planted. Be joyful, rather than critical. And seeds are planted. Be forgiving, quick to forgive, rather than holding grudges. And seeds are planted. Be quick to confess wrongdoing and seek forgiveness, rather than stubborn and combative. And and seeds are planted. Be like Christ. And seeds are planted. And then let God give growth. All right, we're done. Thanks, everybody.